Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome back, Crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly. And let me just start off by saying, wow, it feels like it has been forever since I got behind my mic and brought you guys a brand new episode. Massive shout out to Kinsey for carrying the team the last few weeks as I have been drowning in massive amounts of homework. Thankfully, I am now on my spring break before I start my final term of my bachelor's degree. So yay for more podcast time here in the very near future. Without further ado, let's kick off today's Missing Monday. Missing Monday was a segment that was created by Kenzie and I to help keep missing persons' name and information in the media the best we can and to help aid in their return home. 90,000 people are missing in the U.S. at any given time, and while some are found alive or deceased, the majority are still missing today. In today's episode of Missing Mondays, I will be giving you the details about Kimberly Raymer. I want to begin this episode giving a massive shout out to the Unfound podcast on both YouTube and regular podcast platforms because the large majority of my information for today's Missing Monday comes from their interview that they did with Kimberly's mother. So let's get into what we know about this case. Kimberly Lauren Raymer was born on May 18, 1980 to her parents, Sue and Kenny. Kimberly had an older sister named Kristen that was just 17 months older, and the two of them were very close growing up. She and her family lived in Op, Alabama. Now, Op, Alabama is a small southern town. In 2019, Op had a population of 6,500 people, so I can imagine back in 1997 when Kimberly went missing, it was significantly smaller. In Op, Everybody knows everybody. It's one of those towns. Her parents were divorced, but she split her time equally between both her mom and her dad's house, and she had a great relationship with them both. Kimberly was a great student. She was athletic, but she really loved softball. She was extremely outgoing, had this bubbly, beautiful personality that really made people feel welcome. From everything that I found about Kimberly, she truly never met a stranger. According to her mom in that interview with the Unfound podcast, Kimberly didn't have any enemies. People just loved her. At the time of her disappearance, Kimberly had just turned 17 a few months before, and she was enjoying the final weeks of her summer vacation before she was set to begin her final year of high school. After high school, Kimberly had plans of going off to college at the University of South Alabama, and she had dreamed of becoming a physical therapist. What her parents didn't know at the time of her disappearance was that Kimberly had a boyfriend. And despite Kimberly being only 17, she was dating a older man who her parents wouldn't approve of because he had been previously married and had a small child. 
Because she knew her family would disapprove, she kept it a secret and only her closest friends knew. But the pair had only been dating for just about two weeks. He had apparently spotted Kimberly at a softball game she was playing in, and somehow they struck up conversation and began to hang out. On Friday, August 15th, 1997, Kimberly had her senior portraits taken, and after that she hung out with some of her girlfriends before going to a softball game. After the game, Kimberly went home and took a shower. Her dad was headed out to hang out with his girlfriend and told Kimberly if she was to leave the home to be back home by 11.30 p.m., which was her curfew. Kimberly went to her boyfriend's house to spend some time and left there sometime around 11.30 p.m. She drove the few blocks down the road to her dad's house and parked in the driveway and went inside the home to presumably get ready for bed. That night, Kimberly's father decided he was going to stay at his girlfriend's place instead of going home. And we have to remember that this is 1997, so most people didn't have cell phones to communicate. And so there was no texting or Facebook messaging to check in. So it is my understanding that Kenny felt that his daughter was a responsible teenager, never been in trouble, never missed curfew, and was always where she was supposed to be. So leaving her home alone wasn't something he felt could cause any kind of troubles. Let me remind everyone also that Kimberly was 17 years old when she went missing, so she didn't necessarily need that constant adult supervision all the time. The following morning, her father Kenny comes home and spots Kimberly's car in the driveway, but he didn't see her. He didn't know if maybe she was still sleeping, but he did, however, know that she was going to be leaving the home to sell magazines with another one of her girlfriends, so he didn't think anything of not seeing her up moving about the house. Perhaps she was sleeping or perhaps she had already gone out with her girlfriend. But he does write her a note, grabs his golf clubs, and heads out for tea time. The evening rolls around and Kenny ends up calling and leaving a voicemail with Kimberly's mother, Sue. She gets this voicemail when she arrives back home from fishing at around 1 or 2 a.m. Sunday early morning. She tried to call Kenny back, but the call went unanswered, so she went to sleep. Later that morning, Kenny calls Sue again, and this time he reaches her. He asks her if Kimberly was at her place, which this took Sue by surprise because Kimberly was supposed to be staying at his house. Kenny tells her that he hasn't seen her, and he's been calling all of Kimberly's friends, and none of them had seen her either. Sue knew instantly that this wasn't like Kimberly to run off and not tell anybody where she was going, so she hurried over to Kenny's house. When she got there, all of Kimberly's friends began coming over around this time, and they kept telling her parents that her boyfriend must have her and is not letting her leave. And this was the first time that her parents had even heard that Kimberly had a boyfriend, so this really surprised them. But they acted quick, and they went over to the house where Kimberly's friends said that he lived. But when they got there, nobody was home. They decided at this time that they needed to file a missing persons report. By the time that they filed this missing persons report, it had been over 24 hours since her father had last seen her. Some of the information at this point is a little bit spotty, but from my understanding, they really didn't search her bedroom until after that missing persons report was made. And I'm not sure if her room wasn't really looked at before because the door was closed or if her dad only quickly glanced in there to see if she was there or not. But for whatever reason, it was searched after the missing persons report was made and 
It was searched by both Kimberly's parents, her older sister Kristen, and Kristen's boyfriend Jeremy Anderson. When they looked in her room, it was found in a way that wasn't really normal for what her room typically looked like. Inside her room, it appeared that Kimberly had made it home and began her bedtime routine. Her purse was there that held her wallet and her keys, and her contacts had been removed and put into their container, which Kimberly needed contacts to be able to see so she wouldn't have just walked out of the house without those. Not only that, but what is strange is that all of Kimberly's shoes were accounted for. Not a single pair was missing from her bedroom. So if she had went anywhere, she would have had done so by leaving the house barefoot and practically blind. But what caught her family's attention the most was that the pictures that Kimberly had up on her wall had been knocked over. Her bed also appeared extremely messy, almost as if a struggle had taken place on it. And there was a pillow that was shoved between the wall and the mattress, which was odd. It was pretty obvious to her family that something had happened. It was obvious that Kimberly came home. She took her contacts out. Her car was in the driveway, but she clearly wouldn't have left without shoes or her contacts. She had to have been taken from her bedroom. So because Op was such a small town, word traveled like wildfire. And before they knew it, there was friends of Kimberly's and her family in and out of the house, which Thinking from a forensic standpoint, this is a big no-no. I'm not sure if they actually went into Kimberly's room or not, but either way, it could have potentially damaged the preservation of the scene. And I think a lot of this kind of stems from op authorities. This was like nothing they had ever seen before. This was the first case they had dealt with of this nature, so they all were kind of just floundering around, unsure of what to do next. So because the amount of people in and out of the house, all physical evidence that could have been present is probably destroyed. The family, when they went in the room, I know they were pretty cautious not to touch anything. However, every single time Kimberly's mother, Sue, turned around, Jeremy Anderson was touching things. She kept asking him not to touch stuff because you just don't know what could be on it or if it could potentially be evidence. But for whatever reason, he just couldn't keep his paws off stuff. When authorities looked around, they came to the conclusion that there had been no sign of forced entry. Aside from the way that Kimberly's bedroom had looked, it seemed as if nothing else was out of place or had been touched at all. So this whole thing was really, really baffling. Days go by and Op Police Department decide that this is a little bit bigger than them. So they called in the Alabama Bureau of Investigations. Then not long after that, the FBI actually gets involved as well. And I'm not exactly sure why they got involved. Not often do we hear that the FBI gets involved in missing persons cases. In the Unfound podcast interview that Sue did, the host actually asks her about the reasoning behind this. She states that she isn't sure if it's because they weren't far from the Florida border and there was thoughts that maybe she could have crossed state lines, or if it's because Kimberly's older sister's boyfriend, Jeremy, called his father, who was a detective in Walton County, which is in Florida. 
So maybe he had some FBI connections or something, and he was able to pull some strings. But either way, the FBI gets involved. So there are three different entities that are working on this case. The uh, police department, the ABI, as well as the FBI. So as the investigation really began, they naturally started with the last person who had seen Kimberly, and that was her new boyfriend. When they finally tracked him down and spoke with him, he was very cooperative, said that she did come over that night. The two of them didn't go anywhere. They just hung out at his place and right around her 11.30 p.m. curfew is when she got in her car and drove the few blocks to her dad's house. The boyfriend also agreed to take a polygraph test, which he passed, and then he was ultimately cleared as being a potential person of interest. He, however, continued to help in whatever way he could, including with ongoing searches for Kimberly. So investigators are left with wondering what to do next. The person who they thought was likely the shoe-in for her disappearance was easily cleared. So they decided to give those who were closest to Kimberly and those who were more involved with the case a polygraph test as well. One by one, they brought in Kimberly's parents, friends, sister, and they all were one by one ruled out as having any sort of involvement. When it came time to have Kimberly's older sister's boyfriend take a test, he flat out refused. Jeremy Anderson was the only person who would not cooperate with authorities, and he refused to give a reason as to why he didn't want to take a polygraph test either. Naturally, this caused investigators to get even more interested in him. As they began to dig a little bit deeper into Jeremy's past, they realized he had an extensive criminal history. Jeremy had various charges such as robbery, drug charges, and assault. So it was clear to investigators that this dude can be violent and is no stranger to doing so. Not only that, but he's already been charged with previously breaking into someone's home. What would stop him from doing so into Kimberly's father's home on the night of August 15th, 1997? However, just because you have a criminal history does not mean that you're guilty, nor does the denial of a polygraph test. So authorities had to just keep him in the back of their mind, but they had to continue looking for more information. So they decided to pull up the phone records for the landline for her father's house. And what they found is a little bit interesting. They were expecting to maybe find calls to a girlfriend to come pick her up or maybe even an attempted 911 call. But what they actually found was that calls had been made at 5.20 a.m. to a certain location in Florida. Now, I want to take a second to remind everybody that Op was really close to the Florida border, so it's not rare to have friends living on the Florida side since Op was so close to the border. Now, this location that these calls were made was actually about 10 minutes from her mother Sue's house, and there was three different numbers that were dialed in total. When investigators began looking into who these numbers belonged to, they realized that they weren't assigned to anyone, so these calls weren't going through at all. 
Kimberly's mother, Sue, states in her interview that she believes whoever was making these calls was doing it so quickly and in a state of panic that they couldn't remember the number they were actually trying to dial. So they were dialing random numbers and obviously they weren't reaching who they wanted. But what is more interesting about these calls was the location that those numbers were trying to go to happened to be the exact area in which Jeremy had been attending a party that night that Kimberly had gone missing. So Jeremy seems to keep popping up. He was there when they searched the home, was following behind randomly touching stuff, called his dad saying the FBI needed to get involved, and one more thing that was interesting that Sue said on The Unfound was that just days after Kimberly went missing, Jeremy wanted to leave town. And Sue recalls telling him that he would look super suspicious to investigators if all of a sudden he ran out of town, which she states that when she said this, the look on his face gave her this super sinking gut feeling. Maybe Jeremy was involved. Meanwhile, investigators are also zeroing in on Jeremy and they officially announced to Sue that Jeremy is a suspect. Investigators started to take a closer look at Jeremy's alibi to get a better understanding of what he was doing late the night of August 15th and the early morning hours of August 16th. Initially, the alibi that was given was that he was hanging out with friends all night and even Sue and Kristen was able to say that they saw him in the morning of the 16th around 7 or 8 a.m. before Sue left for her day of fishing. The FBI put a super hard lean on Jeremy's friends, and they all seemed to pretty much crack and crumble under pressure, and it comes out that they were covering for him. It comes out that he was with his friends, but it was only until about 2 a.m., So between 2 a.m. until whatever time exactly it was that Sue and Kristen saw him, there's zero account for his whereabouts. When asked about this, he couldn't give any answers. His story and locations he had supposedly visited changed repeatedly, and it was not making any kind of sense whatsoever. But the FBI was relentless. The more they dug, the more dirt they uncovered. Apparently, they found out that that night, Jeremy had borrowed a truck from one of his friends. For whatever reason, he did not want to use his car and borrowed the truck for a reason that nobody knew why. At 6.30 in the morning after Kimberly was last seen, Jeremy shows up in the truck to his friend's house which this also happens to be within that location that those phone calls tried to reach. And this was literally like an hour after those phone calls had been placed at Kimberly's house by whoever it was trying to make those calls. He shows up at his friend's house and I guess he was kind of going crazy. It was like he was panicked about something but didn't say what. He just kept asking one of the friends to follow him so he could get rid of this truck and get his car back. So the friend follows Jeremy in the truck to a church parking lot where he leaves it and then gets inside his friend's car and gets a ride to Sue's house, which is when he had seen Sue and Kristen that morning. 
And I'm sure you're sitting there like myself when I first heard all of this information with so many questions, and authorities did too. By the time they finally got all of the pieces to the puzzle about this truck and what he was or was not doing that night, a good chunk of time had passed since Kimberly's disappearance. When they finally were able to get their hands on the truck, it had already been cleaned out. And I'm not sure if this was a malicious thing trying to cover something up or if it was just simply cleaned by the guy that owned the truck. But from my understanding, authorities did do a search on it. They seemingly didn't find anything of use or maybe they're just withholding that information. But they were trying to figure out where exactly it had been vacuumed out at. Despite all of the weirdness that was going on and clearly suspicious activity on Jeremy's part, they still had nothing concrete to hold him on. However, at some point in 1998, Jeremy ends up going to jail for something unrelated. Authorities were still working relentlessly on this case. They really felt that whomever was responsible had to have known Kimberly. Remember I stated earlier that there was no sign of forced entry. Whoever came into the home either had to have been known by Kimberly and she let them in, or they had a key and let themselves in. Now come to find out, a few months before Kimberly went missing, Jeremy and his girlfriend Kristen, her older sister, was actually staying at Kenny's house for about a month. He was very close to the family, likely knew Kenny's routines and times he was in and out of the house. He had known that Kimberly was staying at Kenny's house that night because his girlfriend Kristen was staying at Sue's house during that weekend. So all signs were literally pointing to Jeremy as the only person to possibly have done something to Kimberly. Not only that, but since he was staying at Kenny's house during that month, maybe he had his very own key. Nobody could remember if he had a key, but Kristen was fairly certain that he had. On what would have been Kimberly's 18th birthday, nine months after she had vanished, authorities responded to a tip they received, taking them to a lake in Walton County, Florida. Unfortunately, after thoroughly searching the lake and its surrounding areas, they came up completely empty-handed. In 2001, a nonprofit group from Texas brought in cadaver dogs, and they got several hits. When they dug up an area, they found an engine block with a rope tied to it. I honestly couldn't find much information about this other than what was on a Daniel Hallen's YouTube video, so I'm not sure if this was pulled out of a lake or a dried up lake or dug up or whatever, but if this is truly the case, it seems extremely suspicious that a heavy object like an engine block would be found with a rope tied to it. That is obviously something that could be used to weigh a body down. Apparently, the FBI brought in their own dogs to this location, and they didn't hit on anything in this area. So ultimately, nothing of real evidence was found. According to Medium.com, in July of 2006, a sinkhole near Ponce de Leon, Florida, had a tip come in to FBI that stated Kimberly had fallen into the water there. This hole was 55 feet deep and 300 feet across. The FBI was really interested in this location because this was also the area that those calls from the house came into. 
they brought in 10 divers and spent a total of 35 hours scouring every inch of the water, only to find nothing. As the years passed, tips slowly trickled in. One in 2015 sent investigators to a property in Coffee County. Their search was focused behind a dilapidated home off road 412 that had an old well. After hours of digging, again, nothing that indicated that Kimberly was ever there was found. One thing that I have to say that I'm impressed with is the continued work that it seems police are putting into this case. In 2019, an updated flyer was made with info about Kimberly and was shared throughout the area. They had hoped that this new flyer would generate new leads and help solve this case. Law enforcement has conducted thousands of interviews and hundreds of searches for Kimberly. They also follow up on any lead that comes in, no matter how minimal they may seem. Kimberly Raymer was 17 years old when she went missing on August 15, 1997. She has brown hair and brown eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she was 5'4 and weighed 130 pounds. She also had clear braces on her teeth. She was last seen wearing a white t-shirt with a bright, colorful design on the front and cut-off gray sweatpants. She had also been wearing a gold bracelet, necklace, and anklet. As we can already gather, there is a lot of speculation and questions into what happened and how involved, if at all, Jeremy was. We don't typically go into speculation too heavily in our podcast episodes, but I would love to know some of the theories and ideas that you guys have come up with after listening to all of the information provided. If you or anyone you know has information about Kimberly Raymer's whereabouts, you can call the OP Police Department at 334-493-4511 or the FBI at 202-324-3000. Be sure to join our private Facebook group called Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group if you haven't already. In there, we always share pictures and information pertaining to the cases that we cover, as well as share all things true crime. Be sure to also follow us on Instagram and TikTok at crimeaholics.podcast. If you haven't already, hit subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you're notified every single time a new episode goes live. Crimeaholics, that's all for now. Until next time, be aware and take care. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back, and this week we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. Everybody.